We're not going to um, read the text this morning as it's going to be incorporated in the sermon itself. So uh, I do encourage you, though, to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, Our text is from verses 23 through 29, but we'll be referring back to as far as verse 17. So by having your Bibles open, you might be able to uh, capture the points we're trying to make this morning. I've been asked to um, give some reason why we would take some time this particular Sunday to recognize World Communion Sunday. Um, I, I know at one time it used to be a part of our denominational calendar, but I looked on the website and it's not posted as anything that we have to recognize as a denomination. But I think the significance of what this day is in terms of worldwide faith uh, should be noted. Just a little bit of background. Worldwide Communion Sunday was first introduced in the early 1930s by a Reverend John A. Dallas. He was a Presbyterian minister, and his attempt was to promote a spirit of cooperation and unity within the churches there in Pittsburgh. Uh, While the concept was slowly being adopted, eventually the Presbyterian church or the denomination endorsed it as something that they wanted to do, and they, in turn, tried to promote it as well. It really never got any traction until World War II, when it became the attention particularly of the Federal Council of Churches, which we recognize today as the uh, National Council of Churches, recognized the importance of churches coming together. And if, if you can just imagine what importance prayer plays when the world is at war. And so it did find its traction at that time, and it became something that was to be observed in the larger ecumenical community. Today, it serves as a reminder that we are part of a global community, a a people that hold something common in faith as recognizing Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the first Sunday of October is now when Christians in every culture break bread and pour the cup to remember and affirm the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. Whether shared in a grand cathedral or a sanctuary such as this, a mud hut outside on a hilltop, on a street corner, a meeting house or a storefront, or even under the spread of a big tree, um, as, as often as the communion liturgy is spoken, as different as the congregations are, so are those expressions, but yet still the same in loving Christ. Today we are reminded that we are part of a large body of believers, united as brothers and sisters in Christ from all four corners of the globe. We're a part of a great and glorious family as Jesus is the head of the church. I'm going to just, I'm just going to share with you an observation that came to my mind as we were singing and I was looking at the elements on the table. I think I shared with you some time ago of how special the communion service has at least come to mean to me. It's not something that I feel that we need to hurry to get to. I'm going to confess, when I was a kid, and I was sitting in church, and I saw the elements on the table, 
I knew we were going to be in church a long time. And I wasn't particularly excited about that. I mean, I had other things I wanted to do. There were other things on my mind. Can I just suggest, don't be like that 12, 14-year-old boy sitting in the pews of the Aurora Avent Christian Church. Let's linger for a while. Let's give some attention to what's going to be unfolded before us this morning as we're responding to an invitation made by Christ himself, something that Jesus wants us to do. The center of the observance of a Sunday like this, where churches around the world are celebrating communion, the center of the observance is coming together at the invitation of Jesus himself, inviting us to come to his table. And we are to do so as a service of remembrance of what the bread and cup represent. His broken body and his blood poured out as a redemptive price to save and deliver us from the slavery of sin. For the Lord's Supper came out of the celebration of what was recognized as a Hebrew or Jewish feast. It was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the Passover meal was toward the end of that observation or celebration. And it was this Passover meal where Jesus applied the meaning of this Jewish feast to himself. Jesus, as he gathered together in the upper room to celebrate Passover, to be breaking bread with his disciples, eating a meal with his disciples, was laying before them a much deeper meaning than they had ever been exposed to before. Through the centuries of tradition, and following the laws of their faith. As the meal was to commemorate the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery and bondage to the Egyptians, it would become a meal that Jesus would speak of his saving a world bound in sin. And just as the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorposts and the lentils of the homes to protect the Israelites enslaved by the Egyptians and to protect them from the angel of death as it passed over. Jesus, by his blood, spattered on the beams of the cross, would speak of the protection that he was offering against the enemy death to all those who would trust in him as Lord and Savior. Jesus said to his disciples on that first Lord's Supper, do this often in remembrance of me. Now, several weeks ago, I'm sure you remember the sermon I preached on Acts 2, it's coming to mind, isn't it? We refer to how the disciples broke bread together in their homes. Remembering Jesus and the one who delivered them from the bondage of sin. To be accomplished through his death and resurrection. And again, a promise made of him coming again. We can only imagine 
the extremes of emotion and deep reflection experienced by those disciples as they took on this observance that was being initiated into the life of new Christians, of the church. As that bread and cup were being shared, there had to be the heaviness of heart as they remembered sitting in the upper room with Jesus and they had come there with total different, to- totally different agendas. <laughs> Their mind wasn't on the supper. Their minds were on themselves. How heartbreaking it must have been for them to recognize that as Jesus was talking about what he was ready to do for them, all they could think about is what they wanted for themselves. And then... To reflect again on what Jesus was saying when he's saying, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which has been shed for you. Made no sense at all until they saw the horrific crucifixion of their Savior and their Lord. And that image, I'm certain, penetrated their minds and hearts and never passed. Only to be surpassed by the sight of a a risen Christ, one who has been spared death to its fullest and claiming victory over the grave. Can you imagine the the, the, the extremes of those emotions that these men must have experienced when they gathered in these homes together with the fellowship to break bread and to drink from the cup? I have to imagine, in my own mind, what Jesus must have felt. We'll come to that a little bit later. Regularly, the Lord's Supper, communion, would be incorporated in sharing a meal with fellow believers. The custom to gather in homes was to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The worship time was usually preceded by what's called the agape, or in the book of Jude, we read about the love feast. And oftentimes, those gatherings would be hosted, particularly as the church was growing, in the homes of those who were well-to-do. And so what would typically happen, particularly as it's being addressed in the city of Corinth, those who had resources would gather in these better suited homes and settings and bring the the elements that made the feast and began to eat. Gluttonous, gluttonous, gluttony was their, their practice over this meal. They would just about consume everything before those who were of the poor station in life would arrive to be a part of the fellowship. It got so far out of hand that sometimes the cup was filled too many times with wine. And they would find themselves in a drunken stupor as they were supposed to gather to remember the Lord's Supper. Needless to say, they would miss the significance of this meal. This is the background of our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is addressing a serious problem here of how the sacredness of this meal has been excused by the habits of people 
who could only think of themselves. What was happening was a discrimination of the rich against the poor, the have and the have-nots. What was being demonstrated was of no thought to Christ, but only of themselves. This is why Paul wrote the letter. This is the backdrop behind his chastisement of the Corinthians. He addresses the problem, and he offers, offers solutions to correct the problem. I, I don't want us to ever forget the significance of this meal that's set before us this morning. Let us not simply see it as an observance that's to be practiced within the church. Let us make it a memorial meal that keeps before us the need of a deliverer and the cost of that deliverance. Let us always remember what Jesus has done, that we might escape the enslavement of sin. What he has done to deliver us from the enemy, death. I'm going to propose five things. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly, but five things I'm going to suggest we give thought to as we approach the Lord's table. And the first one is quite simple. Come to the Lord's table in remembrance of him. Jesus, as Paul wrote in his words, said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper and saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives us a picture of himself. Jesus is exposing to his disciples the, the, the incomprehensible dimensions of his love that he is ready to lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. We should pause and look at this often as to what Jesus has done. He has become the substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me. Everything that we deserve because of our sin, Jesus took upon himself. And, and as we come to this table, and as we look at the broken body, and we look at the shed blood as represented by the bread and the cup, we cannot forget the suffering of Jesus. Peter, in his first letter, writes, He himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Secondly, come to the Lord's Supper with the love for others. And I made reference to the verses that precede our text and these verses, uh, verse, chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. And you will recognize in that particular section of this letter that Paul points out factions among you, divisions among you, selfishness among you, and the fact that you go ahead and eat your, your own meal. They were only thinking of themselves. 
this again in a much more, I guess, dramatic sense as it's portrayed through the, the carnality of man <laughs> in this setting. It points again to how that first Lord's Supper was approached by men who came into the company of Jesus with a whole lot of other things on their mind. And it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. They, you know, they had Passover with Jesus before. But Jesus... Welcome, welcome the disciples to the table, inviting you, me, you and me to the table. Is the one who also was inviting those and inviting we today, people who don't really give a lot of thought to anybody but ourselves. We must think of others. Uh, it's, it's, it, 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 it's throughout all the epistles. It's in the Lord's own words. Others, 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 others. <laughs> you know the others. <laughs> That's what Jesus wanted us to be mindful of. Third, come to the Lord's table with the examination of yourself. Um, Paul writes in the 27th through the 29th verse of chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Our condition as we approach this table has to be recognized. We are sinful. And that's what these elements represent, covering us with the broken body and the shed blood of Christ to rid us of the guilt of sin that should be on us instead of it being on Jesus. By examining ourselves, Paul means that we should do a private mental inventory of our relationship with Christ and with others. Where are we in relationship to others? You got a grudge against anybody? You better deal with it. Where are we in, in terms of uh, those sins that we hide from others? Is there something between us and the Lord we're not being honest with him? He knows. Where are we in terms of our faith? Are we really trusting in him? Are we really exercising faith in Jesus as he wants us to do? The Lord's Supper is not for the sinless but for those who are dealing with sin and with a repentant heart are coming before Jesus and receiving these emblems of his sacrifice in order to cover our sins. Um, Billy Graham in his book, uh, How to Be Born Again, tells a story of, of, of John Duncan, who was a prominent scholar, uh, scholar, Scottish theologian. He writes... Once at a communion was being held in a church of Scotland. And when the elements came to a 16-year-old girl, she suddenly turned her head aside and motioned for the elder to take the cup away. She couldn't drink it. Professor Duncan reached over the pew and touched her on the shoulder. 
And he said, take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. This is offered to you and to me as we are honest enough to confess our sins before Jesus Christ and choose a course of repentance. Number four, come to the Lord's Supper often. Paul writes, in the same way as he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How often? Once a week? Once a month? Once now and then? How often? One of the concerns that's often often ex- expressed is that if we do it too often, then it becomes a ritual. It just becomes routine. And uh, I think Tom alluded to that in his comments this morning of how we take something that is, is truly meaningful and an expression of our love for Christ and we make it routine. I have to just remind you that we have a habit of making things a ritual, a routine. Uh, if, if you approach your daily devotions as something you've got to do, something on your checklist, or your daily Bible reading, or how you pray, or coming to church every Sunday, or as often as you can, or joining the fellowship groups as something that you do routinely, it could become just a ritual. So how do we safeguard against that? I'm going to suggest anything that you think you, are, you think you are doing in terms of practicing the faith, take the time to ask, why am I doing it? Who am I doing it for? What's to come of this, this expensive time? What is it going to do in terms of my relationship with one another and with Christ? The one thing I like about the invitation to do this often is it brings us to the place where we have to often deal with our relationships with Jesus and with one another. Finally, number five, come to the Lord's Supper to celebrate the promise of feasting with Christ again. I I don't know how many times you've heard the text read from the Gospels, and now even as we have referred to the text in 1 Corinthians. But I I want you to listen to this. These are the words that Jesus himself spoke as recorded in three of the four Gospels. Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Mark 14.25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I will drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Luke 26.16, Jesus said, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You know what that is? That's a proclamation that there's going to be a day when we sit down at the table again with Jesus. And when he comes again, we will be invited to his table in the kingdom of God. 
The Lord's Supper is a proclamation, yes, of Jesus' death, yes, of his life, yes, of his resurrection, and also a proclamation or a promise of him coming again by the very words of Christ himself. Maybe today. That has become kind of the, the catchwords for Advent Christians, you know. We even had bumper stickers that maybe today. <laughs> it's a marvelous thought that as we, this moment when we gather at the Lord's table, upon his invitation to sup with him, that he, in the fullness of his glory, with the sound of the trumpet, to summon us to come and to be seated again with him, at the table prepared for his bride, the church, for you and for me. I can tell you're really excited about it. Seated with him at the table to partake again the feast, the feast with the king in his kingdom. John Stott wrote these words. If the cross is not central in our thinking, it is safe to say that our faith, whatever it may be, is not the Christian faith. Our creed, whatever it may be, is not the Apostles' Creed. The Lord's Supper reminds us to keep the cross of Jesus Christ central. Come often with love for others, Remembrance of the Lord and an examination of yourself. And that's the invitation that I would just extend this morning, that we come to his table with a love for others, the examination of yourself and in remembrance of the Lord.